So today we move along in our study as an overview uh, of each book of the scriptures. And this morning we are in the book of Leviticus. So you may want to turn in your Bibles there. We'll make uh, some references to Leviticus. This is, uh, as we said last week, for most people, the kind of end of the line of opening books of the Bible that you're strongly familiar with, all right? We, we know well the story of creation. We know Noah and the flood. We know Abraham. We know Moses and the Exodus event. Uh, and Leviticus is about where it starts to break down for, for most people. Uh, does anybody remember contextually uh, where we're at when these books are being written? What is the original reading audience for whom these were given? When did Moses write these books? Anybody? Mr. Gamble. While the Israelites are wandering in the desert. So now we're, we're in the, the space of time wherein these events are, are taking place as well. Does anybody remember the problem at the end of the book of Exodus? Exodus ends with a particular problem. Mr. Horn. Uh, Moses was not able to enter the temple. Moses is not able to enter the tabernacle. The tabernacle and its construction takes up the last five chapters of the book of Moses. And this is to be representative of God dwelling with his people. Right? We said in Exodus that, that the, the theme of Exodus is God delivers his people so that he might dwell with them. God delivers his people that he might dwell with them. And Exodus ends with the construction of the tabernacle, which is supposed to be where the presence of God is. And it is there. But even Moses, the most holy of all the people, cannot enter in. The, the, the glory of the Lord is too overpowering for even Moses to enter in. And our study today is going to show how the book of Leviticus solves that problem. How does Leviticus answer that problem? Because God will not allow his purposes to fail. Uh, for those of you that were in the 830 service and those of you that will be in the 11 o'clock service, Dr. Phillips is actually going to talk a lot about this very thing, that God will not allow his covenant promises, his purposes to fail, even for the sake of his people. He will make a way for his people to dwell with him. And it comes in the form of atoning blood. In many ways, Leviticus is, as we said, the most skipped over book in the Old Testament, and especially within the Pentateuch, but it's also, in many ways, the most important book in the Pentateuch, because if the Pentateuch is God revealing himself to us and who we are and where we're going, which is what we've seen in the first two books, then Leviticus reveals to us, in a sense, the mechanics of what makes that possible. What is it that, that, that reconciles us to our God? What makes us God's people? What secures our status as God's people? And what, what purchases our right to the promised land? And you'll see I've, I've got an outline here of the book for those of you that want that sort of thing. And we're going to cover it really in these two broader points that I've got to the side here. The purpose of the blood and the power of the blood. Uh, Leviticus is probably most foreign to us because there's almost zero narrative in it. 
There's almost no story. There's almost no progress in events. Almost nothing happens to advance the story, if you will. There are actually only two narrative sections in the whole book. And most people only know the one. What's the first story in the book of Leviticus that comes to mind, if anyone, if any story does? Does anybody know one, one big key story that happens in Leviticus? The death of Nadab and Abihu. And the other, the other narrative that occurs in the book of Leviticus is, is in chapter 24, and it's the story of, of the blasphemer. Um, part of the reason that Leviticus is, is so sparse on narrative is because time really slows down here. If you think about it this way, Genesis covers something like 2,000 years of history. Like, it's really broad in the, in the time period that it covers. Exodus covers about 80 years. It covers from the birth of Moses up to when he leaves Israel, up to when he leaves Egypt at about 40, and then when he comes back at about 80. Leviticus covers the space of one month. It really slows down. I've got here on kind of this ascending, uh, this bell curve arc here. If you look at Exodus chapter 40, verse 17, it says, on the first day of the first month of the year, and then if you go over to Numbers chapter 1, verse 1, it will, it will re- make reference to the first day of the second month of the year. That's how much time has passed in the book of Leviticus. It, it really slows down and it focuses our attention here. Um, and, and we see here that this is uh, the, the mountaintop of the Pentateuch because in painstaking detail, it's going to go through how it is that we are reconciled to God. And there's two key themes in the book of Leviticus. One is atonement. The word or the concept will appear in the book of Leviticus, which is 27 chapters. It will occur 43 times. And the other, and I would say predominant theme in the book of Leviticus, is the, is the, is the theme of holiness. Holiness. And that word comes up 77 times in the book of Leviticus. 77 times. And so the purpose of the blood, you might say, is atonement. That's the first half of the book. And the power of the blood is the power that we might live a holy life. Uh, the, the big theme is, is holiness resulting from atonement is essential to fellowship with God. Or as one of my uh, seminary professors put it, a holy God can only be approached by a holy people. How do we dwell with God? Blood-bought atonement and holy living. Uh, A more detailed outline, again, as as I said, is behind me. Uh, But the first half of the book deals with atonement for sin. That's the five major offerings. That's the, the consecration of the priesthood that are to handle those offerings. That's the ceremonial cleanness laws, which we'll talk about a little bit. And then ultimately the day of atonement. Uh, which is in chapter 16, which, which uh, is the, the high day for practicing Jews even now. They call it uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It's still observed, um, although not in the biblical way because they can no longer offer the sacrifice. Uh, so that's what we're looking at this morning, the purpose of the blood and the power of the blood. So as we said earlier, Exodus ends on a problem. God had delivered his people that they might dwell with him, They've erected this tabernacle as his dwelling place, 
But the problem is the glory of the Lord has, has filled it and Moses can't go in. The problem then could be stated this way. We see God is holy and his people are not. God is holy and his people are not. These people who are, who are so dear and so precious to God that he ransomed them, that he delivered them from bondage and captivity in Egypt, they are not holy. And if you get nothing else from your study of the Bible, get this. God's love for you is not contingent on your behavior. It is, it is unconditional election that we believe in. It is not based on you. It is based on the merits of another. There, there's a famous Baptist preacher named Paul Washer, uh, who some of you may be familiar with. And, and he said this one time, and it really stuck with me. He said, I have given God countless reasons not to love me. And none of them has been strong enough to change his mind. Why? Because of the, of the, the, the blood that was shed on our behalf. Now that said... Because God loves you and he desires to dwell with you, he will make a way for you to be holy. And that's probably the simplest way to explain all the details of the first chapter, first seven chapters of this book. God is instituting a sacrificial system to show his people his plan to make them holy. The plan for bringing them into his presence. You see in the beginning of the book, Remember we said it ends with Moses not being able to go in. It says in verse 1 of chapter 1, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. And then you have seven chapters instituting the sacrificial system and the, and the consecration of the priesthood. That's, that's the way in. Through the sacrifice and the, and the priesthood. And if you take the time to read these opening chapters, you'll see there's a sacrifice for every imaginable circumstance. There's a sacrifice designed to atone for every possible condition or state of being. Because God is indifferent about nothing. God cares about everything. Another one of my professors at, at RTS, Michael McKelvey, writes this. The reason for sacrifices clearly contrasts with the practice of sacrifice among other ancient Near Eastern societies. Many polytheistic and henotheistic groups gave offerings to feed the deities. As the gods were fed, it was believed that they would bless and provide for their worshipers. So he's saying every other ancient Near Eastern religion, every other culture that exists at this time had sacrifices. But the goal, the purpose, is fundamentally different in Israel. The purpose of every other religion's sacrifice was that they might um, barter with their God, that they might give him something that he finds desirable so that then, they will, that, that then he will give them something. It's, it's let's make a deal. It's I scratch your back, you scratch mine. That's ancient Near Eastern pagan sacrifice. That's what it's about. But the sacrifice in Israel suggests nothing of the sort. It exists to enable worshipers to draw near to the presence of the one and only holy God. In other words, our God does not need our sacrifices. Would somebody please read for me Psalm 50, verse 12. Psalm 50, verse 12. 
If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and everything that's in it belongs to me. God does not need us to give sacrifices. He's not in, in want of anything. He's not lacking anything. But rather, he gave Israel the sacrificial system because they needed it. They needed it to be able to dwell with him. And unfortunately, so often, Israel would go on to treat the sacrificial system in the same way the pagans did. They would think, because I do this, God owes me X. Because I do this ritual, God owes me blessing. I give to him, he gives to me. They, they think of it that way. How do I know they think of it that way? Somebody please read the prophet Isaiah, chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. Isaiah, what? Isaiah 1, 12 to 13. Yeah. 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 When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in Psalm 7. So God says to his people, through the prophet Isaiah, when you come before me, who required of you this trampling of my courts? Who, who, who called you to bring these offerings to me? Who called you to have these feasts and celebrations in my name? Actually, God did. God himself called for these things. And he's saying, because of the way you're doing it, because of the heart that's behind it, it's not pleasing. It's a stench. It's filthy. You're, you're not here to be with me. You are here to get some fringe benefit. Um, as, as Jesus would say in, in John chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, they were following him not for the truth of his teaching, not because they wanted to serve him, but because they wanted another free meal, because they wanted, they wanted tangible, physical blessings. That's, that's pagan worship, and, and our God will have none of that. That's not what he's after at all. And speaking of pagan worship, while we're under this section of the purpose of the sacrifices, let's deal briefly with this uh, ceremonial uncleanness state. Um, because that's one of probably the most controversial sections in the book. One of the things that causes people the most uh, trip up. Because there are so many things listed in the unclean category that would seem to not be sinful at all. That would seem to be uh, completely unavoidable, and yet the Lord calls them unclean. And, and I think um, part of the problem is we tend to equate in our mind those categories. Clean equals holy, unclean equals sinful. And that's a conflation of categories that the Bible's actually not making. You didn't get that from reading Leviticus. You you inferred that, you, you, you made a guess at that, and then, you, then people tend to assume it. For example, Leviticus 12 speaks of the rules for ritual cleansing after giving childbirth. A woman is considered ceremonial, un, ceremonially unclean after delivering a child. How in the world could that be sinful? Well, the answer is, as I've already said, it's not. 
You have to take into account clean versus unclean are not analogous to righteous versus righteous and sinful. Secondly, as we've said, the, the context is God is saying here, my worship will not be like the pagans. And, and you'll notice that so many of the categories that, that are dealt with in this ceremonial cleanness uh, section have to do with, with, with sexual context and sexual categories. Why is that? I think Mark Dever probably explains it best. He says, in the ancient Near East, fertility rites, cult prostitution, and child sacrifice all played a prominent role in worship. So as you read through Leviticus, you find that anything having to do with sexuality, birth, or human death makes a person unclean. And unclean people could not be touched. They had to remain separate. God did not want such abominations as child sacrifice or cult prostitution to ever happen, much less to be seen as a part of his worship. So, so ceremonial uncleanness is, is basically a, a safeguard to say the, these other categories of worship that people in the lands that I'm sending you in to possess, they, this is part of their worship. It will not be part of mine. It will not have anything to do with the worship of God. He is safeguarding his worship from being corrupted by the pagan practices of the nations that will surround Israel. We are not to worship God any other way than as he has said, and we're certainly not to worship him in any way that is dictated by pagan religions. Does anybody have any questions on that before I move on? Pretty clear, straightforward. The whole purpose, then, of this section, from, from the detailing of the sacrifices, the commissioning and consecrating of the Aaronic priesthood, it's all a, a picture of how unholy people are reconciled to God. The theological word for this, as we've already said, is atonement, which, if you break it down, is at-one-ment. That is, God bringing his people into union and communion with himself. The purpose of the sacrifice is to communicate to us the way back to God. The way of peace with God is through blood. If Genesis 2.17 warns you that in the day you eat of the fruit, you will surely die, and it does, then Leviticus 17.11 tells us that life, the life of the flesh, is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for your life. You are spiritually dead until you receive the power of the cleansing blood of Christ to whom all of these sacrifices point forward. The life of the flesh is in the blood and it's poured out on the altar to make atonement for our souls. Because God requires blood for our sins, which are gross and heinous, Leviticus tells us that that blood will come from another. That's the gospel in Leviticus. You can be brought back to God despite your sins because of the blood of another. Now, before we get to the power of the blood, let's consider just one more thing under its purpose in this setting. Would somebody please read uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 21 to 23? Hebrews 9, 21 to 23. And I want you to know that uh, Hebrews, uh, as Pastor Bailey would often refer to in his uh, sermons on Leviticus, Hebrews serves almost as an interpretive manual for all of the Old Testament, but especially Leviticus. 
If you want to know what's going on in Leviticus, read Hebrews. Now, Hebrews 9, 21 to 23, somebody who hasn't read yet. Miss Berenger. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Thank you, Ms. Berenger. Did you guys, did you guys notice that? The, the, the tabernacle and all of the things in it had to also be cleansed, had to also be purified. Why is that? Because they're copies. They're types and shadows. The whole system is provisional. Not, not just the sacrifice itself, but even the, the place that it takes place, because it's all pointing to a greater fulfillment. It's all pointing to the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus who, who is uh, the sacrifice, right? The, the Paschal Lamb. We, we sing this in our hymns. Christ the victim and what? Christ the priest. Christ is the sacrifice. He's also the one who offers the sacrifice. But he's also the fulfillment of the tabernacle, right? Jesus would say, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He is the one who, who is the fulfillment of the tabernacle and the temple. He is the one in whom we approach God. When we pray in Jesus' name, it's not just something that we tack on the end of our prayers. It's we're saying, I am confident that you hear me because I am in Christ. When we go into the sanctuary to worship, we go to the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Spirit. Everything in the first half of Leviticus is provisional and pointing forward to ultimate fulfillment and dwelling with God in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of it had to be cleansed. All of it had to be purified by the blood because it's all provisional. Um, yeah, Ligon Duncan summed up the whole Christian life this way. That's where I got what I just said from, actually. We come to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. That is Christianity 101. And so the Son, the Lord Jesus, is, is the fulfillment of all of these things. Now, briefly... What is the purpose of the blood? We've looked at, excuse me, what is the power of the blood? We've looked at its purpose. It is to reconcile us to God. The purpose of the blood is to forgive our sins. Leviticus 16.30 For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. But here's the truly remarkable thing about the power of the blood. Yes, it cleanses you from sin. Yes, it, it pays your debt. The sacrifice of Christ pays your sin debt. But it also makes you holy. It makes you more like him. Would somebody please read Leviticus 19.2? Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, uh, your God, am holy. Very good. The whole sacrificial system is given in the first 17 chapters of the book. And the, the outworking of that, the follow-through of that, is because of that, you will be holy. You will be made like God. You will be holy, for I am holy. 
That's how Peter understands it as well. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, he says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And then he goes on to say, Therefore you shall be holy as your God is holy. And so this, this holiness code that really makes up the bulk of the second half of the book is the metric by which Old Testament Israelites could gauge how they were progressing in their sanctification. What does it look like to live a holy life? It touches every aspect of your life. In fact, a lot of the stuff that people think is unique to the, to the New Testament is actually being pulled from this holiness code. A lot of it. For example, Jesus says, and we've talked about this passage recently, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. That's coming straight from Leviticus 19.17. You shall not murder your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Jesus is applying the fullness of that command by bringing in, uh, by bringing in ideas that are in Leviticus chapter 19. Or the next verse, Leviticus 19.18 would say, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what holy living looks like. Why? For I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 19.18 We are to love our neighbors as ourselves because that is a reflection of the character of God. That is why we have our sins washed away so that we can be made like Jesus. And so that's really, again, the message that's going throughout this book. And we'll, we'll close on this um, apologetic note. Uh, we do have uh, something with the, we do have to do something with the dietary laws uh, because they're in the book of Leviticus and, and we don't observe them on New Testament grounding. Rise, kill, and eat, the, the Lord told Peter in Acts. Um, why, why do we care so much about the rest of this holiness code and not things like the dietary laws? In Leviticus chapter 11. Well, for one, the dietary laws are not part of the holiness code. Where would chapter 11 be? Ceremonial cleanness. It's a different category. That's why we drilled so much over the summer. What are the three types of law? Civil, ceremonial, and moral. These are moral. These are ceremonial. Some are done away with. Civil and ceremonial. Moral still abides. So first of all, it's a confusion of categories. Short answer then is that this is not a matter of picking and choosing. It's a matter of recognizing different types of laws. Those are ceremonial laws, so we no longer keep them for the same reason that we no longer offer the sacrifices, because they have been fulfilled in Christ. Fair enough. But what about Leviticus 19.19? This would be in the Holiness Code. This is the passage about not wearing mixed fabrics and, and, um, and not uh, sowing two kinds of seed in the same field. Why, why not that one? Why is that one not still abiding? Well, the point is that we are to not mix holy things with common things. The principle of that law still very much applies. What, what partnership has, uh, has, has, has uh, light with darkness? None. We do not mix holy things with common things. It's also likely that this has, has uh, to do with 
uh, a call to not usurp authority. One commentator explains, the rationale may be that some priestly garments were made from mixed fabrics. Since non-priestly Israelites were forbidden from doing priestly duties, this prohibition would have prevented them from heading in that direction. Another thing, in other ways, it's a call to not take what the Lord has not called you to. Do not assume authority that is not yours. Something the early Israelites we know were tempted to do, and we'll see that next week in the book of Numbers, when they attempt to rebel against Moses in the wilderness. The New Testament no longer distinguishes the church's leaders by special clothing, meaning Christ uh, Christians may wear mixed fabrics today. It does, however, recognize the special role the, the, the Lord has given to church's leaders, exhorting Christians to support and submit to them. Principle still holds true. The principle is still very much in play. It's a, it's a matter of understanding what it means at the concept level. One final note, then, as we close our study of this book. There are two narrative sections in the book of Leviticus, as we've already alluded to. Uh, the death of Nadab and Abihu in chapter 10, and the stoning of the blasphemer in Leviticus 24. Why are they here? Why are two stories in here about the death of those who do not uh, obey? Uh, yeah, Jack. Set an example and show that the Lord is very serious about his consequences and he's not just setting them there so that he can move all the rules. He's setting them there that, to show that there are consequences. Yeah, he's saying these are, these are not suggestions. This is the way. There, there is no other way to God other than the, the blood of the Lamb. There is no other offering to bring. There is no other, other means of approaching God that is, is acceptable in his sight. I think often of the prayer of our Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying on the night before he would be crucified. If there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. If there is any other way that your people might be saved, let this cup pass from me. The cup did not pass. Because there is no other way. And, and any time that we uh, attempt to come to God apart from the blood of Christ, we are, we are spurning that way. We are rejecting it. We are denying it. There's only one way to dwell with God, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what these, these stories tell us, one thing they tell us, is that all other ways lead to death. Let's pray. God in heaven, we do give thanks to you for the book of Leviticus and for the clear message that, that holy living uh, is, is acceptable in your sight because of the blood of Christ shed for us. And we pray, Lord, that you would call us to trust more in the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, that we might be made to be more like him by the power of your Spirit. And the word uh, preached even this upcoming hour, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.